What's up, everyone? It's Michael Scotto, Hoopside.com's NBA writer and host of the Hoopside podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by a former number four overall pick of the Chicago Bulls and a former New York Nick who I watched over the years as a native New Yorker myself. Now he's co-hosting the Caramel and Cheddar podcast on the Players' Tribune with his wife, Patrice. Today, Eddie Curry joins us on the Hoopside podcast to talk about that new podcast with his wife, Patrice, on the Players' Tribune his NBA playing career with the Bulls, Knicks, and much more. Eddie, great to chat with you, brother. How are you and your family doing? Hope all is well. I'm I'm incredible, man. Thanks, Mike, for having me first and foremost. But yeah, man, I'm truly blessed, man, and and just really in a good, good place right now. Thank you so much. That's awesome to hear, brother. Obviously, you know, you've been through a lot over the course of your life so far, but happy to see that you're doing well. And one of your newer ventures uh, that you and Patrice have been working on that just started recently, uh, the Caramel and Cheddar podcast. I got a kick recently. Uh, you guys talked about the King Richard film and you dressed up a little bit. Kudos uh, to Patrice there for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but for those who don't know about that yet, I, I mentioned it in the open. Can you give uh, some of the listeners and, and people that have followed you over the years growing up a little bit more of a sense of uh, what you guys are hoping to accomplish on the Caramel and Cheddar podcast on the Players Tribune? Of course. Um, so basically what we do is uh, we try to use our um, we've been married for over 16 years. Um, so she's been with me through the ups and the downs and the ups again and the downs again. So we've been we've been all around. Uh, we've been all around this 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 thing called life, man. And we've uh, and we've found a unique opportunity with the with the Players Tribune. Uh, we wanted to uh, we wanted to do a, a podcast. Um, it was going to start off. It was always going to be a relationship podcast, um, but with the help of the Players Tribune, man, it really helped us to to make it into something really special. Um, so we take relationship movies, um, anything dealing with relationships with love and just things that couples kind of go through, any type of movies like that, and we really just uh, break them down into a couple to, uh, couple topics. And we um, just draw a lot of comparisons to our real life, and we use those movies kind of as an outline, as a skeleton, to talk about some real issues, things that uh, couples may encounter in their in their relationships, and just how we were able to get through it. So far, you guys have touched on uh, the net the Netflix film Malcolm and Marie. I touched on about you guys talking about King Richard as well. Um, how much do you guys t- kind of really go into that comparing? talking about relationships and throwing your own stuff out there. Like you said, you guys have been married for a long time now and congratulations on that. That's a wonderful thing in this day and age. Certainly. Um, how much is, is there like a crossover between talking about your own lives and the experiences you had and, and some of the stuff in, in these films as well with the, the sweet and salty takes, uh, I know Patrice joked that you were more of the, uh, salty. Yeah. She calls me the salty one, but, I think I'm a sweeter one, honestly, but you know, <laughs> it, it's funny that um, um, going into this, I never knew um, just how many of our experiences would would pop up, and it, and it was happening so much so that we literally, I mean, we've been developing this show for a while. Um, it's taken oh, almost a year now, maybe a little over a year to really dial it in because we had so many just situations that we were uh, relating to. And we would get off topic a lot and we would kind of just wander. Our our conversations would go into so many places, sometimes really dark places. 
Um, so we actually, uh, with the help of, of, of Greg Cali with the, with the Tribune, our guy Greg, um, we really kind of just dialed it in. We had, we said, you know what? We're going to pick three topics and then that's how we're going to, and that's what we're going to attack. I mean, because really, man, honestly, I mean, we've been married for 16 years, but we've been together for over 20 years. So with that type of time, with those type of experiences, man, like it's not much that's going to happen in film that we haven't covered. Anything outside of sci-fi, we pretty much covered um, in our relationship. So it, it, it's never it's never a shortage of things to talk about. Um, if anything, uh, Greg and, and, the, and the Tribune have to talk to us like, look, everybody needs to know at the end of the day you guys love each other. Because, I mean, a lot of times, I mean, like I said, man, things can get dark, especially depending on the type of movie that we're watching. Uh, we're very, very open um, and honest about our relationship. And just um, Patrice is very emotional. She'll, t- she'll forget that the camera's there and then it, it is rolling. Uh, so I got to kind of bring it back every now and then. But but yeah, man, we, we talk about a whole lot. We talk about everything. We're a complete open book. And I think that, that people will see that um, as the season goes on and as we move into another season, um, we got some really, really heavy movies. We kind of started out really light uh, with Malcolm and Marie. and um, and 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 King Richard. Um, it's funny because we we filmed King Richard before um, the incident at the Grand at the Oscars. Um, so really, that was just supposed to be. I mean, it was a great movie that we saw um, raising our kids. We saw a lot of parallels to to how King Richard was doing, and just the I just the idea of really really having a vision for your children as they're growing up. And he was actually in a position to where, I mean, he actually was able to see his, his, his vision come to fruition with his children, uh, Venus and Serena, along with the, with, with, with the other siblings that they had, too, because all of them grew up to be very you know, successful um, in their own rights. Um, so that's just something that we tried to dive into. Um, we didn't know, obviously, that, that the incident would happen at the Oscars. The next film that's coming out will be, um, I think it's... Uh, Four Christmases. I don't know if you ever saw that one, but that's an incredible film. It's super hilarious. Uh, Vince Vaughn film from a while back um, about uh, two about two people whose families kind of come to they go back and forth visiting each other's families and stuff like that, and we get into you know the first time we met each other's families and things like that. But then we also got heavier films, heavier films like like Fences, um, which is a Denzel Washington movie about you know, a guy stepping out on his, on his wife and things like that. And of course, you know, I, I, we, we went through all of this. So, I mean, I think you're going to see a, a, a just a, a wide, just a gambit of um, a different emotions and, and just tapping into different things and just really trying to tackle topics, but doing it from a, you know, just like I said, from a real honest place, we're telling our truth. Um, what, what works for us may not work for, for someone else, but I think that we'll definitely, um, it'll hit home for a lot of people. I think it's certainly commendable. It's a lot of vulnerable topics you touch on. Um, I do hope that uh, you don't get slapped the way Chris Rock did um, on the podcast. I know you guys do a video. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not, man. Hope um, that. But hey, well, no, hopefully that's uh, that's not in it. But uh, hey, I mean, you uh, you did talk about how like it's been over twenty, you know, it's twenty years for you guys overall. Um, like from being a kid that went into the NBA as a teenager, right? And and your journey as a couple together from, how would you describe that journey from when you started out in the NBA to where you are now? You know, we're talking, you know, 20 years later. How how would you describe that, that journey? And, and you talked a little bit about, 
you know, relating some of your personal experiences to the to the films on the podcast? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was ah, man, that's a good question. Uh, I would say it was a roller coaster. And uh and I think I provided a lot of the the dips, honestly. Uh she was the more consistent thing in my life. She probably was the most consistent thing in my life. Um, basketball was up and down. Uh, my own personal life decisions and things that I would make were up and down. Um, friends were up and down. She was definitely the most consistent thing in my life. Um, but I think that journey, I mean, it's, 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 it's a journey that I, I, pro- I can't say that I would change it. Um, I, obviously, I would, I, I would do some things different in terms of like uh, just some better decision making when it came to dealing with her and dealing with uh, just dealing with people, dealing with emotions, um, trying to um, act a little more maturely. Um, it's funny because I talk to I talk to my friends. Uh, I only have a few friends, but I, I really kind of try to when I speak to them. I, I, like I don't know. I kind of came up with this thing where it's like you know when I when I got drafted, I feel like when players get drafted, everything kind of stops for, for them. Um, because then the, the, the business side kicks in and it's no longer about, um, truly maturing. Um, you want to obviously put the appearance out that you're maturing, but for the most part, it seems like the, the, the primary focus is on just improving basketball and and helping your team win and, and trying to capitalize on and off, on and off the floor. And I mean, and, and I respect that, and I and I understand that that's a part of becoming a professional or something. Um, but one of the things that 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 I would try to, uh, if I could change, would be that part of it. I would try to continue to to just, I guess, uh, mold and continue to try to accelerate that growth in my maturity as my basketball skills came along, also, because I think that's one of the things. Um, for some people, that could be a, a problem for them. Um, the fact that you're in a situation and um, it's hard to tell uh, what's right from wrong sometimes. It's hard to tell what's good for you or what might turn out to be bad for you, especially if you're at a stage in your life where on the court you have a success, um, but off the court, you're not, you just, you're just not, you just can't seem to get it right. You also had talked about in the intro video on uh, the Players Tribune for Carmel and Cheddar that uh, <laughs> you joked about how Patrice was a little bit of a cougar, jokingly, and uh, you you let her, you you were okay with being taken advantage of. How how did you two meet when you first did like twenty years ago? Yeah, man. All right. So Patrice, uh, she was working at the Berto Center, which was the practice facility uh, for the Chicago Bulls. Um, so when I got drafted by Chicago. Like, I would see her every day. Um, she was literally at the top of the stairs. You would go in, and the film room was upstairs, and a couple, like, the massage rooms were upstairs. Jerry Krause's office was upstairs, um, all of the executives and stuff. So the court and the the court and the, the, the weight room and everything else was downstairs. But for every time we had to go upstairs for something important, film or something like that, I would see the first person I saw. Um so I immediately, like, you know, I'm asking questions. I'm asking because at the time, B.J. Armstrong was working up there. And Pete Myers was there. That's my guy, Pete. And so I'm asking everybody, like, man, who is that? Um, and that's basically how it started, man. I I, um, I approached her. I was a kid still. You know, I was, you know, 18 years old. So I wasn't used to – I still – I was fresh out of high school. And I, I'm, I'm probably years – a couple of years away from – 
sending a note to a girl, hey, do you like me? Circle yes or no. You know what I'm saying? So I had to really, I was I was using all my resources to try to get her to know that I liked her. I was telling her, hey, Pete, man, can you talk to her for me? Just tell her that I like her. Ask her, can we go have dinner or go to a movie or something? I didn't even know where to take a woman. I mean, she was she was older than me, so I didn't know. I was used to dealing with, you know, high school girls and things like that. Um, so for me, that was uh, that was a challenge for me. She definitely didn't make it easy. So yeah, that was it was definitely a joke. Uh, but it, I, I, I just like to pick with her like that from time to time, man. Let her know, like, hey, you know, you were I was a, I was a cub, man. You were you were you were a little older than me, and I was a cub, and you took advantage of me. But it's all it's all said in jokes, though, man. I, I, I truly am happy that she um, that she actually gave me a chance, man. And, and that's why I'm working so hard now to really show her, like, man, you made the right decision. Even 20 years later, I just want you to know you made the right decision. I respect it. Um, I can relate to that a little bit. When I was in college, I had a, a girlfriend that was older than me by a couple of years. And it's like when you can't go out and drink and do certain things when you're under the age, it's like <laughs> your game is kind of <laughs> it's yeah, a little man, bit of a different game. Yeah, man. You know, she, she had a boyfriend before me and I'm sure they were going to clubs and doing all of this. and. You know, I get to Chicago and I can't go to a club. I wasn't drinking. I mean, I still don't drink now, but I mean, I had a moment in my career where I did drink a little bit. But yeah, but at 18, like everybody knows you and everyone knows you're not supposed to be there. You know what I'm saying? So it's not like we can just sneak into a club in Chicago. Like that can't happen. And you so also seven creative. feet, bro. You're to... not like sneaking in like that. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So, you know, we had to. Had to figure it out. We, it was a lot of IHOP. It was a lot of Bennigan's at the time. It was, you know, you know, you can order a drink if you want. I won't order nothing, but if you want a drink, you can have a drink. So it was a lot of that. Oh, we certainly going to get into those differences, especially when you went from Chicago to New York. But um, you know, during that, you know, during that time, you you know, being a an Illinois native, playing for the Bulls and getting drafted as a teenager. And it's also post the Michael Jordan era. And it's like, you talk about trying to live up to something like that greatness, that, that that's pretty hard for any, you know, teenage guys, you know, you at the time you and Tyson Chandler, um, both went there together. You want to talk about Cubs. You guys were babies. Um, baby bulls. Yeah. What like Eddie, what was that like for you? How would, how would you describe life as a teenager? in the NBA because nowadays that's it with the new age limit and stuff. It, it's not the same. And obviously social media, a lot of things were different, but back then what was life like as a teenager on the court, off the court, trying to go out, you know, as well and live your life. Man, honestly, for me at that time, I think because I went to Chicago, I, I basically went to New York to go to the draft and I came right back home. Um, so for me, as a kid in Chicago, like I never, I had never grown up. I had never went past downtown. Like I lived out South. So I never went past downtown Chicago. So just to, the practice facility was up, what was way past downtown on the North, North end of, uh, Illinois. And so that alone was just a whole, that was a culture shock. Me just being up there. Um, I was 45 minutes maybe an hour from my mom's house, an hour from where I grew up. Um, and so I spent a lot of time. I would, I would literally go to practice and I would leave practice and I would go right back to my mom's house. I would go right back to the South side. Um, I was just hanging with my friends. 
going to the shopping, going to the mall, um, just doing kid stuff. So honestly, it really didn't hit me. It didn't even really hit me that I was a professional, I think, until the seasons the season actually started. I think that's when I kind of, it, it, it kind of started hitting me. Um, in regards to the Jordan thing and just playing for the Bulls, like, that kind of hit me right away um, because, you know, growing up in Chicago, you know, I would go to a few games. And even a year before that, um, I went to a game one time. That's when I first met Jamal Crawford. Uh, we became friends instantly because um, he was just, he, he came up to me and talked to me. He just, he was a real person. Like, that was the first NBA player that really took the time to just talk to me and, and try to befriend me. And we became friends. So when I got to the Bulls, like, that was my guy. Like, Jamal was my man. So I was living at a hotel that was, like, literally, a, like, it was a gate that separated the hotel from the Burtle Center, the practice facility. And um, Jamal was coming off an ACL uh, repair. So he was at the hotel. I was at the hotel. Tyson was at the hotel. I hadn't quite become friends with Tyson yet because, you know, in high school, we kind of were enemies. Like, I don't know if people know that, but like it was, you know, it was, it was different. It was a different day and age than it is now. You didn't have social media. So everybody kind of hyped this thing up between me and Tyson and Kwame and just all the other top players in the country, especially because we were all trying to be professional. We were, all, we were all trying to go for that number one spot. We were trying to be a lotto pick. And so I, that my whole high school career, I always hated Tyson. And I'm sure he hated me also. So um, so we weren't really friends right away. Um, so me and Jamal just spent a whole lot of time together. Um, I would just always be in his room. So that was really how I spent a lot of my, I would say half of my first year in Chicago was spent just kicking it with Jamal. Um, he was putting me on the Jay-Z and stuff like that. You know, in Chicago at that time, I was only listening to like, Chicago music. I was listening to like Crucial Conflict and Do or Die. And I was, I love Project Pat. I don't even know if you know who Project Pat is, but I was listening to Project Pat like a whole lot. Like that was my favorite rapper at the time, DMX, that type of stuff. But I really wasn't listening to, to Jay Z like that. And, and he was a huge Jay Z fan. And he started putting me on the Jay Z. And then I just, I just fell in love with the music. But I mean, that was about it, man. But, um, it was crazy because going to the games, man, right away, you realize um, just the effect that MJ had on, on that organization because, I mean, we were horrible, but it was always packed in the United Center. And it was mostly because these people had already bought these season tickets way in advance back when like these, this was just the residuals from the MJ era, honestly, coming to these games. And it was it was crazy. And I knew, I felt like, man, if we could somehow win, like, wow, man, maybe maybe we can know how it feels. We can give these people what they deserve. And, you know, unfortunately for me, we didn't do that until, like, my last year there. And then I actually left and went to New York. You know, you, you talk about um, kind of this life as a, as a teenager. On, on a broader sense, obviously now the league changed the rule guys generally you know you're not allowed to go right out of high school like you guys were you tyson you talk about kwame brown um you think kids should be allowed to go pro out of high school again or do you see benefits with the new rule like i, I don't know if that would have affected your decision i would imagine not since you were fourth overall but i figured i'd give you the platform on yeah. that one yeah i think that um i think that the league is a lot more equipped for it now 
And what I mean by that is just the programming that they have, just the the people that they have um, that they make accessible to you now. Um, they didn't know how, that, I don't think they knew how to deal with it at the time. I think that it was such a, it was such a new thing. It was, and, and it was just a flood. Like it was almost like the floodgates had opened and everyone was trying to do it and just trying to decipher who was going to really get picked and who was going to just be losing their, you know, college eligibility and maybe not get drafted, which was, which would cause a, just a, a, a horrible situation for a lot of young men, uh, uh, trying to pursue that, that goal. But I think for the, I think now it's a little bit different. Cause like I said, I think they got the personnel in place. Um, they know what these young kids need, um, whether it was from them learning from the experiences of guys that, that it didn't quite work out for, or just kind of learning from some of the shortfalls that would happen. Um, I think these teams are very, very smart now. They're very in tune with, uh, their players and, and, and the players that they're drafting. So I think that, I think that the league is, like I said, I think that they're very well equipped to handle that type of situation right now. So, um, I know what it was like for me and to be able to provide that type of just relief for my family. Um, you, you, you grow up in these, in these, in these neighborhoods, man. And it just seems like it's just no way out. It seems like, you know, everything is hinging on, on you. And I know that's a lot of pressure on a kid, man, but that's just, that's just the reality of it. I think we all grow up. And want to and want to like, man, I want to buy my mom a house. I want to do this. I want to make sure my mom doesn't have to work again. This and that, and and you literally in a moment's note, and, and literally in the blink of an eye, you, you're able to do that. I think it's hard to tell a kid no to that, and um and and just playing on the highest level, you develop this. By the time you at the you're in a position to possibly be a a, a lottery pick, man, like. You you're at the you you're 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 somewhere in your mind competitively that you're like man I could I could play though I could play on that level not only can I play on that level I could start um, I could be in the playoffs I could win a championship like you you're dreaming big because you've already conquered everything on the high school level so I mean I know what those guys are going through I know the psyche of those guys and like I said I think the league is 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 a lot more just uh, equipped to handle those those types of situations, those type of players. And not only that, you talk about in the blink of an eye. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you can go to college or something, and in the blink of an eye, you have a huge injury, and your stock goes down, and all the money you thought you were going to get goes the other way. I I remember on the Players' Tribune, um, when you would – this is before you did the Caramel and Cheddar podcast – when you talked about your own story – and about, you know, how uh, a lot of things like how Q Rich paid for your flight uh, to go back to Chicago and things like that. And, um, you know, your dad was saying like, um, you know, at the time, like, you know, you got to go. You only have so many years in, in your knees and things like that. It's a different career route. Um, I think people forget that. Certainly I understood that sense. But what I don't think people know is that basketball wasn't necessarily uh, the first thing you wanted to be. And, and this was a little bit of a surprise to me, but um, it, you wanted to be a gymnast before you started playing basketball? I did, man. Honestly, like it was a, it was a group of uh, tumblers um, called the Jesse White Tumblers. Jesse White, um, he was, uh, geez, I, wanna, I'm, I'm, I forgot what he was 
in Chicago. He was like the secretary or something. He was something in Chicago, and and so and somebody's gonna crucify me for that, but I'm sorry. But he was something in Chicago. But what he really did also was he always reached back to the community. He would have a group of uh, kids, um, tumblers. They were called the Jesse White Tumblers, and they would perform at the halftime of like the Bulls games. They would perform at the Bud Billiken Parade, which was like this uh this really popular parade in Chicago. Um, and I just always aspired to 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 be a part of that parade. So, like ever since I would say, man, third, fourth grade, I learned how to tumble. I learned how to do backflips and stuff. Um, we would take old mattresses and stuff that people were throwing out, and we would always pull them out of the trash, and and we and that that's that would be our tumbling mats. That's how we learned to tumble. Like in my neighborhood, that's that. I'm pretty sure it was like that all all over Chicago. Honestly, probably all over America. Honestly, I, I would assume in all those type of neighborhoods, that's what a lot of guys are doing. Um, but yeah, man, that's what I wanted to do. Um, I used to watch. Um, the floor exercise. I used to watch Dominique Dawes was like my my favorite gymnast in the world. Like I always wanted to be uh, able to tumble like Dominique Dawes, and, and and like that was really honestly like that was high up. And honestly, that became almost like a a, a novelty for me because when I would meet somebody, the first thing they would say is, "Hey, I heard you can do a backflip," and I would just do a no hand backflip right there. And I'm talking about I was you know. At that time, I was 6'11", 280 pounds, and I could still do a standing backflip with no hands. So it, it just became a, a thing. And, of course, NBA people and, and, and college people and everybody else kind of started as, like, a display of athleticism and things like that. But for me, it was it was normal. I had done that my whole life, literally my whole life since third grade. That's all I did was tumble. I think a lot of listeners' jaws probably dropped when they heard that. Um, I, how did you then go into basketball? How, when did you first start getting was, into ball? Yeah, I was, uh, I'll say I got into ball around seventh grade, sixth or seventh grade. Um, I was just tall, man, honestly. Um, so in, in school, they had me do all the tall stuff. I was playing the trombone because I had long arms, so they kind of made me play trombone in high school, in, in, in grade school, middle school, I, I should say. Um, I really tried to stay away from basketball because I wasn't skilled at all. Like, I literally never played basketball. Um, one of the coaches pretty much made me play on the team um, in seventh grade. Um, Coach Scott, his name was Mr. Scott, pretty much made me play on the team. And uh, I was so embarrassed to play I didn't even tell my mom that I was on the team. I would just tell her that I was staying after school to do extra work or something like that. And um, I would go to my games and I would come home. And then eventually, eventually, um, my aunt actually, I don't know how she found out. Then she said her friend told her. But she actually called my mom and was like, hey, are you going to Eddie's game today? And she was like, Eddie's game? She was like, Eddie's going to play basketball. She was like, girl, Eddie play basketball. I'm going to his game. So I was. I actually went to the game. And my mom and dad just showed up and I was so embarrassed. I couldn't even believe it. But uh, after that, that's when I kind of, we ended up playing uh, Prairie Hills High School. I'll never forget. We played Prairie Hills High School, which was a high school out in the south suburbs. Um, end up, my friend, he, he will become my friend. His name is Armand Gates. Actually, his brother, Dennis Gates, just became the head coach at uh, Mizzou. Um 
he saw me play and was like, yo, you need to come, you need to come play with our AAU team. Um, he ends up telling him, telling my a, the AAU coach about me. The AAU coach comes out, and I mean, kind of the rest is history. Honestly, like he kind of he talked me into coming to play. He invited me to come to the tryout or whatever. I didn't really want to do it. Um, my parents were like, okay, it's your decision. If you don't want to do it, you don't have to. I said I don't want to do it, and I think maybe the day before it was supposed to start, they were like, no, nah, you're gonna do it, and that was. You know, the best thing that ever happened. They made me go do it. I literally cried. Like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I ended up going, and I just kind of fell in love with it. I was a little better than I thought I was. And then just being around guys my age that were trying to get better, being around, being in, being in an environment where, um, where, where it was just all basketball was pretty, pretty cool. And then from there, um, I came back home, um, a lot of my friends at the time, I was able to relate to them all of a sudden because, like, my friends from grade school, like, I was tumbling, but a lot of them, were, were they were hooping. I just wasn't. So, but when I came back during, like, I would say eighth grade year, seventh grade year, everybody else was hooping, and that just became the thing. We actually even formed a little group called Hoop Life, and all of the guys, were, we were all a part of Hoop Life, and we all just, anywhere we can play basketball, we just play basketball. And I just got better and better and better. And then before you know it, um, uh, eighth grade going into uh, freshman year, this became, a, I actually, that was the first time I was in a newspaper and I was trying to figure out what high school I was going to go to. And my dad ended up, I wanted to go to Whitney Young with, with Clinton. Um, I wanted to go there so bad. My, my parents wouldn't let me go. My dad was like, nope, you're going to go to the school that's in your district. And that was Thornwood High School. And look at that. All the, Whitney Young, for those who don't know, it's a, a powerhouse high school in Chicago where a lot of guys came out of there. Um, I remember from over the years, so that would have been interesting. But I'd say it worked out all right for you. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. Definitely did. Absolutely. It was, it was weird because it made me so mad because literally the first year, right? So a lot of my guys from uh, my AAU team, a lot of my younger guys, because I actually played on Q, on Q Rich's AAU team. But we played on the younger team. We had a younger version. It was the Illinois Warriors. So he he and D Miles and, and uh D Wade, all of them dudes played on that older team. Um and I played up with them a few times, but I just didn't like it because I felt like I wanted to play with my guys. Like I was trying to be loyal. I'm like, man, I don't want to play with these dudes. I want to play with my guys. I want to get good with my guys. And uh and and that's what I did. I stayed down. But a couple of my friends that played down on, on the younger squad, Najib and uh, Ronald Howard, they both went to Whitney Young, and they won a championship the first year. And I remember going to the championship game, and and Ron Howard's mother was like, "You should have been a Dolphin." That was their uh, that that was their mascot. She's like, "You should have been a Dolphin, baby." I was like, <laughs> "I know." I was so sick. I was so sick. Literally freshman year, they won it. I was so sick, bro. Oh man. It's funny how the world works like that. But, you know, you you talking about all these times in Chicago, too. I think, um, you know, I, I wonder, too, what would have happened with you guys. And, and then once you got to the NBA with that Bulls team, I always wondered what would have happened if Jay Williams, uh, for those who are not remembering off the top of their head, the former Duke point guard that went to you guys in the lottery, what would have happened if he would have stayed healthy with that group that you had? I, I, I always wondered that. Did you ever think of that? Yeah, man. 
Like, people don't know. They only see Jay Will. These younger people now, they only see Jay Will as the guy that's on the TV, right? But we know Jay Will to be one of the most electric guards that we've, like, I've ever seen. Um, but it was funny. <laughs> I hope I don't start anything with this. But it was funny because, like, like I told you, man, me and Jamal have been friends, like, since I was in high school. And so, like, that's still today one of my best friends ever. Um, and, and I could just remember, like, you got to remember, man, like, this is the NBA, man. This is like, I don't know. I don't know what to compare it to. I would just kind of compare it to maybe like in a corporate job, like if someone had a corporate job and, and it's time for a promotion, but every year it's a promotion. You know what I mean? Every year someone's getting drafted. Every year somebody's getting, things are getting shuffled around. Uh, Ma was coming off of, uh, ACL. Um, they end up, and every year they were drafting a guard, you know, and this is Jamal Crawford, who we know today to be one of the best guards ever. But this is Jamal Crawford back in 2001, two, three, four. So, so I was there when they drafted Kirk Heinrich and I saw the toll it took on him. I was there when they drafted Jay Will and I saw the hurt and, the, and just the determination and just the, man, I saw what it did to him. So it was just, it was, it was, it was weird. It was awkward. Um, it was awkward to see that. It was awkward. And then Jay Will, that's my man too. Jay Will is my bro. But it was like he came from Duke, and it was like, I don't know, man. It, it was like it was weird, man. It was weird because like I was so loyal to Jamal that like when they drafted him, I felt like the Bulls they went really like. I won't say overboard, but they really did their best to make him feel super special. And I felt like they didn't really do that for all of us. That at the time, my young this is my younger self feeling this way. I'm like, man, that's not and 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 Jamal is my guy. So like when they had him come in, they wanted all of all of us to be at the at the at the training facility when he came. And I'm just like, man, nobody was here when I came. Or, you know what I'm saying? And Jamal was like, nobody was here when I came. Why we got to be here when he comes? You know, I didn't really, I wasn't really watching college basketball like that at the time. I was all into my own world. So I understood that, you know, they really wanted him. I knew that he was incredible. I knew that. And I knew that from just uh, when I played in the McDonald's game. My McDonald's game was at Cameron Indoor. And I remember when he walked in with his Letterman jacket on and the crowd went crazy. And I'm like, wow, this dude is like, he's a basketball god here. This is crazy. <laughs> so I knew he was a big deal. I knew he was a big deal. But my friendship to Jamal kind of, kind of, I kind of took on that personality. Like, if Jamal is upset, I'm upset too. Um, so I definitely welcomed him with open arms. Um, but I definitely, um, it could have been a lot, I could have been a lot more warmer. And I think also he was young too. So he had a little, Jay Will was, Jay Will was a little cocky, man. He was, and I believe he'll tell you he was cocky. So it was, you know, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't like right away. I wasn't looking at it like, oh man, we're going to be great with Jay Will because I'm like, I don't even know if Jay Will likes us. I don't even know. If, you know what I mean? It was, it was hard. Like, we didn't have that kind of relationship. You know, we didn't go over each other's houses. You know, I would go over Jamal's house. He would come over my house. Like, I would go to, you know, Tyson's crib. He would come over my crib. Like, we all kind of 
talked and vibed with each other. But Jay Will was, he came in and he was just on another level. I had never seen nothing like that before. Because before that, before that, I don't know, we just, we just hadn't had that kind of personality there. And I wasn't used to that. I had never seen that before. Now, when I got to New York, oh man, the whole team was that type of personality. It was, it was different. But when I was in Chicago, it was a totally different, um, every, everybody was, I don't know, man, it was different. It, it was almost like they, it was almost like they were drafting the same type of personalities over and over again until Jay Will got there. That's the first time I saw that alpha dog, super um, confident personality up close. I've never seen that before. It's uh, I mean, it's obviously a shame his career got cut short due to injury. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can understand what you're saying about that. I respect the friendship uh, thing for Jamal. One thing I was curious of, too. Um, and, and, you know, you hear this with a lot of teams, especially young teams and teams that, um, they're not good at the times, but, you know, cause we just had, uh, you know, Darius, uh, Miles and Quentin Richardson on recently too. And, and we were talking about this, but for you in Chicago with the Bulls, what were some of the best stories of just wild stuff that went down either in the locker room or something off the court during your Bulls years? Like, I, I'm very curious of that because everybody has, like, oh, funny man. stories, man. Man, I could remember. It was, it was so much, man. I can remember, like. Uh, we got time. <laughs> let me see, man. All right. Uh, I know the first road trip I went on, uh, we had Kendall Gill, right? And that was the first. Ter- Kendall Gill was the first person, the first, like, male that I saw. That just put so much into his like, like uh, I don't even know what you call it, like hygiene. He put so much into his hygiene. You know, we would go in there, we would take a shower, we may put on some lotion and get out of there. Man, Kendall Gill would take a shower. He would come out. He would do his hair in the mirror for some time. He probably would give himself a fresh haircut every time he got out the shower. He would put oils on. He would spray himself with all type of colognes, and he he just would lay it all out on the counter. Um, we go on the road, man, and the first time we get off the elevator, go into our rooms, and there is a trail of rose petals going from the elevator to Kendall's room, and I'm like, what the hell is going on? We are tripping out, like, and he just winked at us, like, yeah, young fella, you got. To- you got to step your game up. I'm like, what is going on? So that was crazy to me. That was like the first time I ever seen something like that. Um, Ron Mercer, Ron Mercer used to call me and Tyson baby shit. And that really bothered me. Like <laughs> we were, cause we were so young and we were the baby bulls and this and that. And he would never call us by our name. He would only call us baby shit. And that would really bother me. Um, I remember, I remember Ron Artest, I remember Ron Artest. Um, I remember Ron Artest getting a job at Circuit City, bro, so he can get a discount because he wanted the discount, the employee discount. I remember that. That was crazy too. What? Whoa, um, whoa, 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 whoa! What? Ron Artest yeah, is making that, you would think making money in the NBA. You don't need. Oh, he didn't care. Ron Artest. Ron Artest literally was a Circuit City. That was it. Was a Circuit City right down the street from the Berto Center. And he went there and got a job there so he can get the employee discount. That was amazing. I, that was the most amazing <laughs> thing I've seen. Um, 
I remember Oakley. Oh man, I got Oakley stories for days. Like Charles Oakley was man, bro. I remember him and Tim Floyd getting into it in the um getting into it in the uh in the film room. Uh they were just cursing each other out. Um I remember Tim Floyd telling Oak like you need to be more like, uh, who do you tell him? He needs to be more like, uh, he, he compared them to two people. I forgot who the two people were. I know one of them was probably like Charles Barkley or something like that. You need to be more like this person because he, he, because, because Oak would really challenge a lot of the stuff that, um, that Tim Floyd was trying to implement when we watch a film and stuff like that. And he would tell Oak, like, you need to be more like this person. And Oak was like, man, he's a bitch. And he said, well, you need to be more like this person. He said, no, he a bitch too. So it was, that was crazy. And I remember them blowing up and Oak called him a name. And I remember after that meeting, Oak told me and Tyson, he was like, yeah, I think I'm going after that one. I was like, what? Like, that's crazy. Like, they really, they really went at it. Like, it was crazy. I remember, uh, I remember Oak and Pfizer getting into it. I remember one time, this was crazy. And Pfizer, that's my, that's my brother. So Pfizer, don't get mad at me, but like, man, I remember, I remember, no, matter of fact, it was Tyson and Kendall Gill, because Kendall Gill also knew mixed martial arts. So <laughs> I remember when, I remember when uh, they got into it one time in practice, man, and Kendall Gill put like this, he did this like weird little move on Tyson. And he had them all wrapped up on the floor, man. He had them all like twisted up on the floor, man. And everybody's like, man, let him go, man. Get up. And he's telling Tyson to tap out. But Tyson couldn't tap out because he had his arm in a way that he couldn't touch the ground. He's like, I can't touch the ground. That was crazy to me. Like, I was, we, I saw a lot of stuff, man. It was, <laughs> it was a lot of stuff. It was a lot of stuff, man. We had fun, though. It was fun, but it was definitely a lot a lot of stuff. It was a lot of emotion. It was a lot of, you know, just a lot of stuff going on, man, honestly. I got to say, we had, so like I told you, we had Darius, Miles, and Quentin Richardson on. That That is a lot better than those two guys getting rejected from the clubs. Like that, because, you know, they were teenagers. This is hilarious. Like a lot of this shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. Well, I remember Oak. I remember Oakley would make me late for the plane for the plane, right? Because like Oak was Oak is my guy, like that's my guy. So like, you know, after the games, after a home game, and we'll be leaving, like we'll have a certain amount of time to get to the plane after a home game because we had to, you know, fly out. But Oak had to go get his soul food, so and he would always make me take him. So I would take him in his car to the soul food place. And he could never just go in and get his soul food and leave. He would always have to because he knew he knew the the guy who owned it. This guy named Rock. We we, we used to go to uh this place called Paget. And wait, Target like Target? <laughs> no, no, no. Pa- I'm just Paget, busting your chops, like, bro. That's hilarious. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Target. <laughs> no, he would go to Paget's, right? So he would go there and get his catfish and stuff, and he would always have to go in. And he was in there just hanging out like. Like, we didn't have anywhere to be. And I'm always like, oh, man, we're going to be late, man. Like, because they're not going to say nothing to Oak, but they're going to say something to me for being late, even though they know I'm with Oak. So we would always end up running late, and he would have me in his, uh, he had a Range Rover, and we'd be on the highway. And every time we were running late, he would he had a switch on there, and it had police lights on there. 
So we would he would literally hit the lights and he got me like, man, right on the shoulder. He would like bark out all these orders to me while I was driving, man. I used to just be so scared, like, oh man, I'm gonna get arrested, man. You gonna get me in trouble? And he's like, man, after that, man, you heard me, man. I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get you. They ain't gotta worry about them. You need to worry about me. I'm like, all right, cool, man. So that that was kind of like that was kind of crazy to me. Also, like, man, he used to. We, used to, we would make it to the plane, barely. We would always make it. But it was only because we, he had those police lights, man. He would hit that light. He would hit that siren. He was making cars. It was the funniest thing. We in a Range Rover, and he hit the siren, the sirens and the lights. And you watching cars move out the way as if we were like real, you know, police and stuff like that. It was crazy. <laughs> this is amazing. But you know what gets me, too? I, I'm thinking, too, when, when, when you did... Um... When you did your story on the Players Tribune, you were also talking about too how like it, it was different going from Chicago to New York. Like you were talking about getting chicken for like eight bucks, and then you're in New York and you go to Philippe Chow, and these people are spending two thousand dollars on a meal. Yes, yes, bro. Yes, yes. <laughs> Let me that tell you something. By the way, that's nothing because like you know I, I won't put the amount, but I like. You know, me being in New York, um, I think we go back and forth between the Nets and the Knicks mostly to their game and stuff. You don't even want to know the stories I would hear where Joe Johnson used to drop at like the 40-40 for meals and drinks and things like that, too. Oh, yeah. Like that, oh, that's yeah. the $2,000 okay. meal. That's that's not actually um, as but crazy. But that'll be just for me and my wife. That'll be just for me and one of my friends. You know what I mean? Like, of course, there were crazier nights, but I mean, like, I'm talking on average. Like on average, I was when I was in Chicago, like I would go to Harold's Chicken all the time. And I would just, you know, I would spend twenty dollars and I was full as hell. I would go to bed like full. And but here in New York, nah, it was different, man. That's that's that was way different. That was another monster, bro. Well, I mean, I you know, again, I I'd said at the top, me being a native New Yorker, I definitely want to talk to you about uh the Knicks years. Um yeah. very fun stuff. I mean, first off, um, you know, we talked about those like $2,000 meals or whatever. If you can go out to Philippe Chow, shout out to Philippe Chow. Great spot. Um, in a city, if you, don't, if you don't know. Um, but it, what, what were some similar question to what I asked you about the bulls? You spent a, a handful of years with the Knicks. What were, and, and again, there was a lot of stuff we're going to get into, but what were some of the best stories of wild stuff that went down in the locker room during your time with the Knicks and just like off the court being in New York City? Because, again, you talked about it, but, but you really hadn't been outside of Chicago like that. And New York, similar big city to Chicago, but it's a whole different like the city. When they say the city doesn't sleep, that is true. Yeah, that's that is absolutely true. Let me think, man, because uh, in New York, <laughs> New York was crazy, man. And I'm trying to think, like, that's the funny thing. I could say this. The stories in Chicago are, like, funny stories, like, but they're pretty harmless. The stories in, in New York, though, man, like, I don't know. That might break up some hype. Somebody's home, bro. Like, the type of stuff that I would see there, man, man, I could tell you this. I could tell you, you know, how they got Philippe Child. And what was the other child they got? They got Philippe Child and they got uh, Mr. Child. So I'm 
I, I'm not knowing. I'm thinking like, okay, it's the same fool, blah, blah, blah. Maybe if you're on this side of town, you go here. If you go, if you, if you over by the financial district, you go to this one. So they're like, I go there one night and one of my teammates is in there. I'm not going to say his name, but he knows who he is. One of my teammates is in there. He tells me, he says, this is, uh, he like, he like city. Cause everybody called me city. They call me East city. So he's like city. Uh, this is, uh, it's cool tonight, bro. But from now on, we bring our, we bring our work here and we bring our wife to Philippe. I said, Oh, okay. My bad. Cause I have my wife with me at, at I'm with the matter of fact, no, you take your, he was saying you take your work to, to Philippe and you bring your wife to Mr. Child. And I went to the, I was at Philippe with my wife because I went over there because I'm like, hmm, they got a Philippe Child in a Mr. Child. I wonder what's, what's the difference. So I went over there with her and he was like, it's cool now, but from now on, man, if you ever find yourself about to come here, you give, you, you call people and you let them know so they don't come here with their, with their girlfriends. I'm like, all right, cool. And that was, to me, that was like the craziest thing. I had never been in a situation like that where it's like, oh, wow, it's a really like, uh, it's really like a, uh, like a code or really like a, a method to cheating, you know, like I really can't. So I remember one time and then he told me, and then he told me right before he left, he said, but because you bought your wife here this time, I could never come back here. Like he literally told me, like I ruined it for him and his girlfriend or whoever. He said, I could never come back here because you bought your girlfriend. So just know in the future, don't bring your wife back over here. That was kind of crazy to me. Like to me, that was crazy. But those are the type of stories that I was kind of running up on in New York. Like it was—it's not a lot of friendly, friendly stories. Not—not not, I'm gonna say friendly, but it's just not a lot of stories that I could be like, "Oh yeah, that was funny." And then, but I—I don't, I don't know. That was just kind of deep to me. That was kind of like one of those. Hmm. So this is New York. <laughs> I respect I respect the code, not naming names, but the generalities of yeah. the stories are interesting. Some people I have heard, you know, on my side of things over the years, other people used to I'm not just saying in New York more. And again, talking in general, people used to have sometimes if they would go to the game. They would have some people on one side of the arena, another person on the other side. And then oh, yeah. I, I'm going to meet you here at this spot and then you can spend some time here at the game after whatever and then i catch you later <laughs> like yes yes oh my goodness <laughs> it's deep man i it's deep and i and i don't know i'm not trying to get kicked out of the fraternity so i can't tell you too much but i can tell you that like yeah it gets crazy like that for real and but like i said man it was just it was it was different like like um i i, I talked to someone the other day and i was just kind of going over the whole thing and I'm just like, yeah, man, I, that, that was, it was a huge difference between Chicago and New York. Um, just, just on that, on that side alone, just on the personal side, just cause, you know, I had to grow up fast when I went to New York. I had to grow up very fast when I went to New York because like I said, I found out right away that this was not, this, this was not Chicago at all. Yeah. And I mean, you know, what's crazy too, 
You talk about Philippe Chow, Mr. Chow. There's Tao Downtown, which I, I don't know if you ever went there before, but that's another good spot. A lot, a lot of New York is just like an endless sea of places you can go. Um, yeah. But, but listen, man, I don't want to get you kicked out of the, the Brotherhood either, man. So I'm gonna keep it. <laughs> I, I'll keep it. I keep it on the court. But I do appreciate the general story. I, I respect it. Um, on the court, like a lot of stuff was going down in your Knicks years. You've got, first of all, you guys had like a team of guys, like they were good players and talented players and they went elsewhere and they really hit their stride. Like I think of Jamal, our guy, I know Jamal too. Jamal's a great guy. You think of Jamal Crawford, you think of David Lee, who became a uh, an all-star as well. Um, you know, you guys had Stephon Marbury. I mean, I guess let's start like in a, in a general sense. All those years that you have all these talented players, you know, Isaiah Thomas is bringing in all these guys and he did coach you for a brief time, but you're bringing in all these guys. You got, you had Zach Randolph too. We'll, we'll get into that. But in general, why as a guy that was in the locker room and, and playing on these teams, right? Why, why did it not, you got all this talent. Why didn't it come to fruition? Why didn't it gel? I was always curious as someone that would watch these teams with all this talent, but it, it didn't always mesh well. Man, um, I, I think <laughs> uh, it's so many different things, I think, man. Like, I could tell you, like, I think you want to feel as a player, you realize it's a business, but you do want to feel some sort of stability you want to feel some sort of uh trust and i know just from me going there um i remember going there man and i heard a story um when they were working on the trade so i get to i get there right and when i get there i noticed because I, I i got there at training camp training camp was in uh charleston so when i get to training camp training camp camp had already started um i go to my room and there's a fruit basket in the room. I'll never forget this. I'm, there was a fruit basket in the room, and it, and it was partially it was partially eaten, and and it had a um it had a the the little the the little gift tag on there. It was it was to Mike Sweetie, right? So I'm like, oh, they gave me Mike Sweetie's room. That's crazy. Um, so I get to practice the next day. And I'm like, I'm talking to Jamal, I'm talking to a couple of guys on the team. And everybody's, of course, like Jamal's super hyped that I'm there because we're reuniting, whatever. A lot of guys are hyped that are, they're really happy that I'm there. Um, and, but they are sad that Mike is gone. And um, they told me that he had cried, man, because it was like, you know, they talked to Mike. And he had been hearing about the rumors about the trade, and he said that that they kept telling him like, "No, we're not going to trade you. We're not going to trade you." And they traded him, and they said it just it just it just messed him up, man. He was crying, and it was just really really tough for him. So I came in there to that, and I'm just like, "Hmm, that's that, that's sad." It had me feeling bad, like, man, I like I felt like I was the cause of that. I felt like I was the cause of that. Um, then you go from that to I started developing friendships with like uh, Jerome James and I'm talking to Jerome and 
I remember the first one of the first things one of the first things Jerome said to me was, "This city ain't big enough for the both of us." And I'm like, "Huh? Like where is this coming from?" You know, and you know, as we as we developed the friendship, as we talked, me, him, Malik Rose, we were all very tight. And he just kind of told me his point of his point of view of it, which which was, you know, he was out in Seattle, he had a good uh he had a good playoff run with them. Um he said they used to call him the, the trash bag man or something like that. He said because they were literally close to, you know, uh, I guess kicking him off the team or or cutting them or something like that. And he was putting all his stuff in the trash bag. He had that good run with them. And then uh, he signed a, a nice deal with the Knicks. And when he signed a deal with the Knicks, he signed it thinking that he was going to be the starting center. He was going like, this was going to be finally his chance to be, you know, that guy on the team. He felt like he earned that right. And that was, you know, that was why he went there. But then they got me. So, you know, these are the type of things that I'm dealing with. Um, I first person I see when I step off the elevator was Stefan. And I never really had a personal relationship with Steph. And I remember getting off the elevator, I was with uh I was with Wes, William Wesley. I was with uh uh Tim Grover. And we go in, we go into the hotel, you know, like the little chairs that sit outside the whole that sit outside the elevator, like as soon as you get off onto your floor. He's literally sitting right there with his man G, his his assistant, his driver. His name is G. And he's like, "Man, welcome, welcome to New York." I'm I'm hyped. I'm like, "Damn, this Stefan Marbury. Like, I grew up loving this guy. Like, watching him on uh, you know, watching him with KG and all that stuff. Grew up loving him. So, and I still do. I still love. I still love stuff, man. It's my that's my brother. But he told me, like, literally, the first thing he said to me was, man, welcome to the team. Um, so this is this how, this how this is going to work. When you get the rebound, you're going to give it to me. Like, always look for me. Even on the offensive rebound, look for me. And then, you know, I'm going to do my thing, and I just make sure that you – I make sure that you get yours from time to time. And I'm just like, hmm, that was kind of weird. I go back to my room, and I remember talking to – to Wes and and uh and Tim Grover and I'm like, like what, what the hell was that about? And they like, man, they like, yeah, don't even worry about that. So but that was just kind of like, I don't know, that was kind of my introduction to the Knicks, man, honestly. And I think that, you know, I saw a lot of a lot of other stuff happen, like a lot of just things that really kind of will shake up your trust, man. Like honestly, um, I remember, I remember around the time that um, I remember Zeke called me. Isaiah called me one summer. He called me. He was like, um, "Man, we got an opportunity to get uh, Zach Randolph." He said, "I think we got an opportunity to get Zach." I said, "Wow, that's incredible." Um, I said, "Zach is my guy." Now I've been on Zach since me and Zach go back to I would say. Freshman year, sophomore year, whenever I started going to like Nike camp and all that type of stuff, like he's always been a great, great friend of mine. I always loved Zebo. Got nothing but love and respect for Zebo. But I told I told Isaiah, I said, now, I love Zach's game. I think he's incredible, but I don't know how that's gonna work. I said, because he kind of 
gets his around the same place where I get mine. So I don't really know. I don't know how that's supposed to work. But I was like, I'm going to trust you. You know what I'm saying? He was like, all right, well, let me think about it. I won't make a move until he was like, if something happens, I'll let you know. And I was like, okay, cool. And then I want to say maybe the next day I heard about the trade. I'm like, oh, okay, we got Zebo, cool. But I think that it's, it's things like that. I, I think it's things like that, man. And I know if that was happening with me, it was happening with a lot of other people, man. And I think those type of things kind of make you almost, in a sense, it kind of makes you just like worry about your own self. Like, well, let me just make sure that I'm that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And I think when you play on a team, you can't be that way. Especially when you're on a team with so many personalities. You got guys, you know, Q was coming there from winning a three-point contest and just he has a he has his own idea of what a successful team looks like and how it's supposed to be and how it's supposed to be ran. And then um and then um uh you know, I, I think everybody was kind of coming from those type of situations. And then you had Larry Brown and uh Isaiah Thomas Isaiah Thomas dynamic. I think all of that kind of I think all of that kind of just, you know, all that kind of played into just what we became as a team. Um, I think it was it, it wasn't as team oriented as it as it probably should have been. It, it's, um, it's fascinating to hear about you talking to him, Isaiah Thomas, about Zach Randall, because I, I thought the same thing as a guy that watched you guys growing up. You both occupied the same spots. Stefan's introduction to you is is interesting um, as far as like how it would go. Jerome James. Like, all due respect, like, you were younger and coming off a better season. You had, like, some potential. I mean, when you came to the Knicks, I don't think this is a secret. Some people thought maybe, you know, you could be an all-star in the East at one point. You had your best year with the Knicks. You put up, like, 19 and 7, um, yeah, closer to your mid-20s in that one year. Um, I, I, You know, I was curious. You know, you touched about Stefan and kind of how he introduced you. Um the one year that things kind of like went up a little bit in flames was like when you guys got Larry Brown as a coach, I said, okay, this is a winner. This is a guy that can help you guys, you know, maybe take it to the next level. And it just like was putting fire and ice together. It just, it didn't seem to work, especially with Stefan. They, they had beef in the media publicly. And then, you know, what behind the scenes, what was that like? with Larry Brown and Stephon Marbury. Any any stories that even came out there that like they didn't even talk about publicly or anything like that? Cause they they seem to like really go at it at each other. I mean they were neighbors. <laughs> they were neighbors, bro. When I and when I tell you they were neighbors, I mean like literally literally we all lived in the same neighborhood. Me, Steph, Isaiah. But they literally were neighbors. Like their backyards backed up to each other and they didn't have fences. So you could literally, if Isaiah went in his backyard to his pool, he could be standing right there, like shaking Steph's hand if he wanted to. Like they were that close. So, and they were that close off the, off the, like, like outside of just proximity. They were really, really close. Um, so I think, you know, knowing Steph, man, Steph felt, betrayed in a lot of situations man he felt like you know he felt like he had Isaiah's back in situations and Isaiah didn't have his back in situations and I think that that like I said man once you once that trust is broken man once somebody feels like 
you know, this is not about a team. This is not, you know, they start feeling like, man, he only care about himself. Everybody starts pointing fingers. And I mean, the media, you know, once the media picks up and starts pointing the finger, let's say they start pointing the finger at Steph. Well, now Steph is like, oh, hell no, it's not me. You need to be looking at this guy. You know what I mean? And, and by that time, you know, these guys got, these guys have relationships with the Frank Isolas, with the, you know, Mark Berman's. Like, they've got relationships with these people. So it's not easy. I mean, it's not hard to, to, to get a narrative going if that's what you wanted to do. Like, I personally didn't play into any of that type of stuff. But I do know that guys, guys were talking to people, man, and they were putting little stuff out. And even, like, you know, I was there when the whole thing happened, when, when Steph got, um, when Steph went home from, uh, from, uh, what's it called it? Uh, what's the name? Uh, from Phoenix. After he decided not to start him. Like, I, I saw all of that happen firsthand. I, I literally saw it all happen. Play out. I saw it all play out. And then to see, to see it play out in the media, how it did, it's crazy. It was crazy. And some stuff I won't say because, like, I do feel a sense of, like, I do feel a sense of, um, I mean, I, I, I always love and I always appreciate Isaiah, man, because, you know, he gave me a chance. Um, that was a really crucial time for me. My career literally could have been over when the heart issue came up and he took a chance on me. So for that, I'm forever grateful. I'm always indebted to him. But. Uh, at the same time, like if someone if someone asked me like just my own personal opinion of what happened there, like man, it was just it was a lot of distrust, man. It was a lot of distrust. There was a lot of things that went on behind the scenes that people don't know about. And like they say, the show must go on. So no matter what was going on, we had to go out there and play. And there was just a lot going on. I respect that. I remember those times when you had the uh the heart issue and then, you know, it's crazy. Like kind of recently, you know, Lamarcus Marcus Aldridge had a little bit of a scare there. Then he went to a brief retirement, came back. So, yeah, that, you know, and getting that, you know, you know how it is. You get your rookie contract, but it's that second contract that always moves the needle. Um, and, it, you you know, kind of um, you touched on Isaiah. Nowadays, it's kind of rare. A guy is both an executive and a coach. Um, what was your impression of Isaiah? in both roles and, and, and whatnot. Cause, uh, you know, you talk about the media and things like that. The media certainly had things to say about him during that time when he was here, you know, there was the whole Anuka Brown Sanders thing that came up at one point, but wh- what did you think of the job Isaiah was trying to do as an executive there and briefly, um, as a coach? Man, I respected it because I felt like, um, he was trying to, he felt like, I felt like he felt, that was his situation. He felt like, man, I I handpicked these guys. I handpicked this scenario, this situation. I'm going to be the executive to get us out of this situation. And if I have to, I'll be the executive and the coach to get us out of this situation. Um, I just think that things had kind of progressed to a point where where it was almost uh irreconcilable, if that's a word, something like that. I think it was, uh, yeah, I think it was, I think it was unable to be fixed, man. I just think that things are kind of, like I said, man, once you violate certain players' trust, man, and, you know, 
just that I don't know, man. It just it was a breeding ground for distrust, and and guys just didn't play for each other anymore. They they really didn't. Nobody was playing for each other. Um, let and you know, last thing, kind of wrapping up with you on on this pod, which appreciate the time, and we've certainly gotten into a lot of stuff, and it's been a lot of fun. Um, your thoughts on your career overall, and what advice you would give to young NBA players um, that maybe you learned the hard way through your career. Um, my thoughts would be uh, just what I learned really honestly is I'm not I'm not I'm not ashamed I'm not I'm not uh, upset about my career. Um, I think a lot of uh, people, a lot of you know, is I'm almost met with uh, a lot of times I get met with anger because I think people wanted my career to go a certain way, and it's like. Man, if you're if you mad or you upset that I didn't do this or that, like how do you think I feel? And do you think it helps that you guys are just like, okay, I'm I'm here now. It's nothing I can do about it. It's not like I can just go sign with a team and try to, you know, correct this or that. Like, okay, it is what it is. I'm here right now. I'm trying to build from here on. And I think a lot of people don't really see it that way. A lot of people still carry and harbor this like anger, this real anger about just my career. Um, and I find that I find that intriguing. I think that I think that that's crazy. But at the same time, I think um, if I had advice, if I had some advice to give to a young player, I would just say, man, I think life is about balance, man. I think basketball balancing. I think guys are doing a great job at, at this now is balancing um, off the court with on the court. Um, sometimes you can tip the scale so heavy with your on-the-court stuff that you you begin to feel as though your off-the-court stuff doesn't matter and you don't realize that the scale is actually tipping in the other way until it's too late. Because once it's tipping in the other direction, now you gotta now you got to try and balance it all out again. So I, I think guys, I think because of social media, because everything is such a, it's such a, like, man, instant karma this is like an instant karma environment where the moment you do something it's out um the moment you're somewhere you shouldn't be the moment you it's out immediately um and it didn't used to be that way so you used to be able to get yourself into some situations and you don't by the time you realize that this is a bad situation like it's, it's really bad and i just think that because of that guys are able to avoid a lot of the pitfalls that a lot of players, myself included, had, you know, a while back pre-social media. Um, and I just think that I think that it's a better product on the floor because of it. And I think that they're better businessmen because of it. Um, I think that uh, I think that people are able to really capitalize off of their image these days, their positive image these days. And they and they realize that they're aware of that. Um you know, we came from, uh, even with, I can remember appearances, you would have to do a certain amount of appearances. Your appearances were always based on, you know, where your team wanted to put you. Like these these big corporations weren't calling and saying, hey, I want this person and I want that person. They're just calling the Bulls and saying, hey, I need two players. And the Bulls are determining like, okay, this is a cell phone deal. Let's give this to this person. This is a... Uh, this is a Mercedes deal. Let's let's put this Mercedes with this person, but let's give the Chevy deal to this person. 
Well, now everybody's so accessible, everyone's so visible, they're able to go right to the player now and and really get these things done. You're able to kind of shape who you are and what you look like to the to the world. And I think that that's dope. Um, but yeah, that's what I would tell a young player. Just balance, try to balance it out. Uh, don't let your highs get too high, your lows get too low, and just stay stay aware um, and just focus on this short window, realizing that it's, it is a very short window. Um, I played for 11 years in the NBA, and that went in the blink of an eye. It literally went in the blink of an eye, and I tell my children that all the time, just in terms of just where they are in school right now. You know, I just tell them, like, man, you're going you're gonna to wake up, and it's going to be 10 years later, bro. So you better figure this out right now. So, yeah, that's, I think that's about it, though, honestly. I just think uh, balance and, you know, just being aware of the situation, living in the moment, and uh, and just have fun, man. Really enjoy it. Well, with that said, Eddie, I certainly appreciate your time. It's fun to learn about what uh, you've been doing post-NBA life um, with the Caramel and Cheddar podcast with your wife, Patrice, on the Players' Tribune. Um, make sure you check that out. And, folks, I'll have a link to that on our transcript version on hoopshype.com. Be sure to check that out as well. Happy to hear that you're doing well. You sound like you're in a good place, Eddie. It's terrific to hear, brother. Man, thank you so much. I'm doing very well, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. And yeah, man, Carmel and Cheddar, man, we're really excited about it. We're really putting our all into it, putting putting a lot, a lot of experiences and just learning and just, just growth into it. So I'm really... I'm getting a lot of good feedback from it, and I'm just excited, excited about the future, man. But, yeah, thank you for having me, and, uh, and I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Eddie. And I also want to thank everyone else for tuning in. If you want to hear more episodes of the Hoops High Podcast with guest appearances from NBA players, coaches, executives, and media members, you can like and subscribe to it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Be sure to do the same for the Caramel and Cheddar Podcast as well. You can also keep up with my tweets on Twitter at Mike A. Scotto. Make sure you're following Eddie too, at Eddie underscore Curry. Until next time, I'm your host, Michael Scotto, wishing you and yours all the best.